all the decorations are down. Um, it's nice when it's decorated, but uh, for some reason I always get uh, very happy when the decorations are gone, and um, it looks, makes everything look just so open, and uh, that's a, a huge blessing. Uh, praise the Lord. There was a good number of individuals that came out to help Jim and Karen Hogue move, pack up the truck. Uh, that, that was very uh, neat that uh, so many came out to help. Uh, they, I'm assuming, they arrived okay in El Paso. And uh, I, I think, I've never been, but I think it's a straight shot. You just get on 10 and go west. So, um, but praise the Lord, there was a good number that uh, came out to help with that, and a, and a good number of people that came to help with taking down the decorations. We are in Matthew chapter 28, and we'll be reading from verses 8 until uh, up to verse 15. Matthew chapter 28, 8 through 15. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And the word of the Lord says, in verse 8, And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, for there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I, I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds and convict our hearts. Father, uh, encourage our hearts where we have been obeying your word. And show us those areas that we'll need to change and to repent of. Father, there might be some here that are not saved, and I pray that the Spirit would convict their hearts and they would understand uh, their need of a Savior and they would put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior today. Father, other of us might be struggling in different areas, discouragement, and I pray that you'll use this text to, to help us to grow. In Jesus' name I pray, amen may be seated. Many times uh, authors will use contrast uh, to show the value of a hero or uh, to show how uh, a villain is just so evil, right? They, they, they use this contrast. On one side, the, the villain, the protagonist, there's these certain characteristics about them, and then they're put with a villain, and the villain is shown with these other characteristics and, and put together, you see, uh, you get to appreciate the protagonist, the hero, so much more. Uh, for example, uh, Victor Hugo and Lemez put uh, Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is a thief. He, he stole a loaf of bread, and because he stole this loaf of bread, he ends up spending 19 years in prison. Can you imagine? For one loaf of bread, 19 years in prison, it seems a, a, a bit much. 
but then on the other side, you have Inspector Javert. Inspector Javert, he's, he's with the law. He, he obeys the law. He, he wants to see the law be obeyed. And in certain sense, you, you get this feeling that um, you want Javert on your side. You, you want him on your side because you don't want people stealing your bread. You don't mind if they steal your neighbor's bread, but you don't want people stealing your bread. But then you also feel for uh, Jean Valjean. 19 years to be spending like this, and this contrast. And you see on this side of Jean Valjean this aspect of grace. And as though you want to side with Javert, you really end up siding with Jean Valjean at the end. And Victor Hugo does this great job at putting both of them together, contrasting them. The Spanish writer, Miguel Unamuno, he wrote a, a short story, uh, San Miguel Bueno. And, and in San Miguel Bueno, it's the story of this small uh, priest. And he's up in the northern part of Spain, in the Picos de Europa. He's there in the small old town. And there in that small old town, it's really isolated from anybody else. No one really goes there. No one really leaves. It's just the small old town up in the mountains. And, and this, this San Miguel Bueno, he's, he's loved, I mean loved, uh, by the town. He, he helps the students with their homework. He, he goes to the people, the older people in the city, and reminds them to take their, 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 their medicine. He goes into the town and reminds the older people to take their medicine. He, he, he does these services for Good Friday. I mean, just incredible. The way he, he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It just caused the whole, the whole town to just bust out in tears. But there's something about San Miguel Bueno is that while he does the different uh, uh, services and so forth, and while he helps people, he really has a faith crisis. He really doesn't believe in God's word at all. He tells people things from the Bible, but he personally doesn't believe it. He's very educated, but he does not believe. In contrast to San Miguel Bueno, there is uh, Blasillo. Blasillo is the, is the town... Uh, dummy, you could say. I'm not sure how you would call it in English. Uh, he, he, he didn't develop fully. And, and he, he, he accepts everything that San Miguel Bueno says. And not only does he accept everything that San Miguel Bueno says, he accepts the Bible in its totality. But he's the town dummy. And Miguel Unamuno contrasts these two people. Here's the priest who's educated and he, and he knows the scriptures. But he doesn't believe it. And then here's Basilio, and Basilio, he's the town dummy, but he accepts it. Now, which one would you rather be? And you're kind of thinking, I don't want to be the town dummy. I'd rather be the educated guy, but the educated guy doesn't accept the scriptures. Paul writes about this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25. It says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. He, he ends up contrasting between God's wisdom and, and, and man's foolishness, that God's foolishness is greater than man's wisdom. So which one would you rather be? Well, if you side with Miguel Unamuno, at the end of the story, you end up wanting to be Basilio. I'd rather be the town dummy who believes in God than the educated priest who rejects him. These contrasts are important. And, and what we have in the Bible is literature. And as literature, God decided to reveal himself through this medium. He sets up this contrast. He uses Matthew to set up this contrast. 
Now there's a temptation as you look at the contrast. There's a temptation found that you're going to see two different groups of people. On one side, you're going to see the women. And, and the women will react a certain way to Jesus and to Jesus being revealed. And, and then on the other side, you're going to see some soldiers and you're going to see the religious leaders and you'll see how they interact. And the temptation will be to start kind of looking around the auditorium being like, that guy's a religious leader. Oh, that over there, that, that's definitely acting like one of the ladies. Oh, that, that's definitely a religious leader. And the temptation is to start looking at the people around you, but that's not the point of the contrast. The point of the contrast is to look at yourself to see where you fall in line. It's not to be looking around. It's not to be thinking about your neighbor. It's not to be thinking about somebody in some other church somewhere else. But rather, the contrast that's being placed here is to examine yourself and to ask the question, which one am I? Do I fall in line with the soldiers and the religious leaders, or do I act more like the women that have been presented with Jesus? And that's the question what we'll have to be asking. Now, contextually, what we've been seeing here in this narrative is that Jesus has been buried. He has resurrected. Matthew doesn't go into the implications of what it means to be resurrected. He, he doesn't go into all the benefits of that. Paul does, and you see that in this doctrine get uh, developed a lot more in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about all the benefits of Christ being resurrected. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 4 through 10, he talks about also the benefits of, of Christ being resurrected. He says, but God, the first four verses talk about how uh, we were in this state before being saved, but then verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his love, his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The fact that Christ has been raised, we are in Christ and we have this benefit of being in Christ. This, this spiritual truth that we are in Christ because of him being resurrected. Paul develops this. Matthew just mentions it, but he doesn't talk about the implications. But the resurrection has had a tremendous impact, and it continues to have a tremendous impact in the world. What we're going to be looking at in this text is that Christians must reject control by lying and manipulating, but should humbly worship the risen Savior. Now, I want to say that again. Christians must reject control by lying and manipulating, but should humbly worship the risen Savior. How, how would we do that? How, how do we see that in this text? The first thing is that we must humble, humble yourself before the risen Savior. And we see that in verses 8 through 10. Here are the women, and they've just been revealed by an angel that um, Jesus is no longer in the tomb. The huge stone is rolled away to the side. The angel's sitting upon it, waiting for them. And he says, take a peek. And they peek inside and they see that where he was laid down, he's not, any, he's not there. He's gone. And he says he's resurrected. He's going to Galilee. You could go meet him there. So, so they take off. They, they depart. And it says that they depart quickly with fear and great joy. 
to, uh, and ran to report to his disciples. They're running. It, it, it means that they are exerting a lot of energy. Now, the idea that women are running, we don't really think too much about it. We, we see Olympic sports where women run. We see basketball, soccer, et cetera, et cetera, uh, where women are running and so forth, so we don't put too much thought about this. But in a culture where it's more dignified to be walking and to be uh, walking slowly, to be rushing, it means that somebody has sent you on an errand. It's, it's undignified. It's the scandal of the, the, the father of the prodigal son that he runs to his son as he's coming. Here they're running quickly. Why? Because they are sent on an errand. What's their errand? To report what, what has been revealed to them. They have a responsibility. They have a revelation, and therefore they must communicate that revelation. Now, uh, we see that, and behold, it puts like this uh, interjection. You're not going to imagine. It's Matthew's way of saying you can't imagine what happens next. Jesus met them and greeted them. What do you do when all of a sudden you're face to face with the risen Savior? What do you do? Do you take a selfie and post it on Instagram? What do you do with the risen? Give me a second real quick. I got to tweet this. Yeah, well, hold on. Yeah, well, this is fantastic. What do you do? What, what do they do? They come and took hold of his feet. Took hold of his feet. When we greet each other, we tend to look at each other in the eye, don't we? We, shake hand. we don't shake hands. That was just a joke. No, we, we do shake hands. And we look at people in the eye, right? Uh, we consider them as equals. No one comes up to somebody else here and gets down on the floor and grabs them by the feet. No one does that. Why? Because it, it's humiliating. But they're willing to do this. They show a, a, a humble attitude before their risen Savior. They take hold of His feet. And then they worship Him. That, that word for worship is an is a interesting word. In this concept, in this idea of worship, they have to know what they're worshiping, right? They, they have to have an understanding that what is before them is much greater than who they are. You don't worship something that you think is less than you. You only worship those things that are uh, greater than you. They're showing reverence. It's the word that's used by the Magi when they're looking for Jesus. They want to know where the king is born so that they can worship him. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. It's the word that Satan used in Matthew 4, 9, where he wanted Jesus to worship him. You can have all the kingdoms of the world if you will just worship me. It's what the leper did when he came to Jesus and asking for healing in Matthew 8, 2, 4. It's the same word that's used in the Greek translation in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. When Israel realized that God had visited them and he knew their affliction, the response to that was they worshipped God to that revelation. Being revealed information about God leads to worship. It's what it does. It leads to worship. Now, Worship involves an increased knowledge of the subject and a decreased knowledge of self. And that is mostly true. That worship involves 
an increased knowledge of the subject and a decreased knowledge of self. Except for, and I'll give this except for, a person that thinks too highly of himself. A person that thinks too highly of himself will exalt the opinions of other people and then work to try to get that, opinion, that good opinion of that person and then congratulate themselves that they have the, opinion, the good opinion of this person. It's incredible what they do. It's, it's an effort. Uh, the, a person that is enthralled, that worships themselves, will exalt the opinions of other people, then work desperately hard to get the good opinion of those people, and then congratulate themselves when they get it. Oh, and boy, do they get bent out of shape when they don't get it. Oh, they get so frustrated and mad, and then they march off and leave. It, it, it's incredible. Here, they have an increased knowledge of Christ, and that increased knowledge of Christ has depreciated knowledge of self, and how do I know that? Because they're on the floor grabbing hold of his feet and they're worshiping him. They have an increased knowledge of Christ, a decreased knowledge of self, and it is worship. Now, we see that Jesus then replies to them. He says to them, uh, do not be afraid. Go. It's, it's three imperatives. Not to be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren. It's an interesting way to mention, to, to refer to the disciples, to the brethren. Aren't, aren't they his disciples? Aren't it the people that he has chosen to, to follow after him? Why would he call them brethren? This is something that gets developed more in the epistles of Paul, Romans chapter 8, 17 and uh, 18. says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be re revealed to us. We're co-heirs. That's a reality that the death, burial, resurrection of Christ brings to us. That we're co-heirs with Christ, adopted by the Father. Ephesians chapter 2 4 through 10, we already read this, but this also brings this aspect of we are brought in to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is a, a reality that is being brought by Christ's death and resurrection. It's incredible. It's one of the reasons I believe in eternal security. A person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ is eternally secure. You won't see a single passage in the New Testament, in the Old Testament either, where a person has been adopted and then unadopted. You, you don't see that. There's not a single passage where that happens. There's not a place where the person has been brought into a family and then kicked out of the family. You won't find a single narrative, not a single law about it. When the person has been made co-heirs with Christ, it's not dependent on the individual. It's a work that God has done to secure that individual. He calls them brethren. Go tell them. Now, if we're to uh, kind of flesh this out a little bit and, and look at it, uh, Christ's death has brought a changed relationship, one that they are benefiting. The ladies are supposed to go tell the disciples that they have this opportunity to go see Jesus up in Galilee. They have this responsibility to go and make an announcement to a group of people that have been chosen by Jesus to go see him at a place future where he's going to be. If you break down the narrative, that's what it is. 
Jesus is commissioning the ladies to go and tell a group that have been chosen by Jesus to go meet him in a place where he has chosen, where he is prepared to meet them. Uh, you're going to see, remember that, because we're going to get to verses 19 and 20, where there's this great commission. And we're going to be given a responsibility to go. Where? To the nations and make disciples. It, what, what's happening with these ladies is something that gets given to the whole church to go out and do. Now, the meeting point is going to be in Galilee so that they might be able to see Jesus. Now, you said that you have to humble yourself before your risen Savior. How do you humble yourself before your risen Savior? To do that, to humble yourself before your risen Savior, you first have to exalt Christ in your thoughts. You must exalt Christ in your thoughts. Some uh, we, we, we can usually spot out somebody, uh, somebody that has a lot of pride, a very proudful person, by uh, the fact that they go around talking about themselves. I, I am so handsome. I, I dress so well. I am so smart. You can't imagine how smart I am. We can spot and say, that, that guy's pretty proudful. I mean, you know, uh, you, you can see from their Facebook feed. Like, this is a very proudful. There's not a picture where, there's not a posting where his face is in or her face is in. This is a very proudful person. But there's another aspect, another way of showing pride, and that's through giving negative thoughts. A, a person who says, oh, I'm so dumb. I, I'm just so ugly. I wish I could be like sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so because they, he, he is so handsome, she is so beautiful. I wish I could be like that. And, and, and people might say, my word, that's such a humble person. Look at them. But what is that humble person doing? Are they not just thinking about themselves? I mean, it's negative thoughts, but are they not just contemplating? Aren't they just caught up on themselves? Well, of course they are. So you can either have negative thoughts and be a proudful person, or you can have positive thoughts and be a proudful person. How do you get out of that? How do you break that? You change your thoughts from yourself, and you start thinking and contemplating on Christ. That's the only way. You have to think about him. Now, if you were to examine your thought process throughout the week, it's surprising how much you talk to yourself. It's surprising how much I talk to myself. Uh, used to see people in grocery stores, and they would be talking to themselves, I mean, with their lips and all. M most of us use our, our brain, but uh, some people actually start moving their lips as they go along. Uh, the benefit of COVID is that some people have masks, and so now they hide it a little bit. Uh, but still, the people are going around them and, and talking to themselves. It's amazing how much time we talk and talk and talk to ourselves. How much of that is exalting Christ in our thoughts. Would you say a 10% of all your thoughts involve exalting Christ? Or would be Christ exalting thoughts? Would you say 50%? What would be the amount of time that you spend in a week where it wasn't focused on yourself and moving your agenda, moving your purposes forward, and they're on exalting Christ and what he has done, what he's accomplished through his death, for you. We have to humble ourselves before our risen Savior. And it's not by thinking less of ourselves and thinking, oh, what a wretched sinner I am. 
It's by thinking how great Christ is. Taking the, the focus off of me and putting it on Christ. We have to be careful about how we're thinking. When we're thinking about God, you might want to start making assertions. And if you start making assertions void of the Word of God, we have fallen minds, and therefore our thoughts about God will be depraved, nasty thoughts. Eventually they'll go to that. As we contemplate, as we seek to exalt Christ with our thoughts, we have to ground them in God's revealed Word. To, to do it void of that, to be just, I'm going to contemplate Christ, we have fallen minds, and we're not going to be able to do that appropriately unless we have an anchor, which is God's Word. God has also given us a community of believers that, that's supposed to also be involved. Uh, 2 Peter 1.20, but we know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We, we look at the text together. This isn't just my, you, I look at it, I point out certain things, and you look at it too. And you either agree, and say, or you come up to me afterward and say, I don't, I don't think you interpreted that at all. So then we take another look at it and say, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not. But he's given the church to be involved in each other's lives. We come together and we read the scriptures so we can hold each other accountable so that our thoughts are on Christ and exalting Christ. Is it enough to just exalt Christ with our thoughts? Well, of course not. We must also exalt Christ in our actions. Humbly having Christ exalting thoughts and Christ exalting worship is not enough. It really isn't. We can get all types of sidetracked with contemplating things and thinking about it, lifting up our hands and worshiping and so forth, but if it doesn't lead to a proper uh, exaltation of Christ in our actions, we're just wasting time. Our actions need to be those, our actions that exalt Christ. We have to want to uh, show God's love, act like He act. See, as you look at this, the, the women were thinking about Christ, and, and you know that because they were revealed the empty tomb, they looked in the empty tomb, they're thinking about Christ, uh, and, and then what do they do? Well, well, then they stop and just start talking about it. Did, did he really rise? Was it a, a, a bodily resurrection? Or maybe uh, the, the body just kind of disappeared, kind of like a Thanos snap thing? Or, 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 and then his spirit just stayed alive? But what was this like? No, they don't do that. As they are thinking and contemplating about Christ, they go into obedience and they're going off to go obey what he says. You see that in the fact that they leave quickly and they're running to report it to the disciples. And then also in verse 11, that they're going on their way. And while they're going on their way, the soldiers are going to be doing something else. Yesterday marked the 66th anniversary of the death of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCullen, and Roger Yodarian. There were missionaries who died in Ecuador uh, at the hands of the Alca Indians. Why, why were they in Ecuador? Maybe they just like traveling, and they like leisure, and they like churches to support them, so that's why they went down there. No, they were being obedient to the call of God to go make disciples. 
Jim Elliott said, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. As they received the revelation of God's word, it led to actions to taking them down to Ecuador to preach the gospel. Well, why couldn't they just send a text message to them? I mean, that would have been a lot better. Or maybe made paper planes out of tracks and then tried to throw it to them. No, it needs people to go, to obey. Exalting Christ with our thoughts and exalting Christ with our actions. So many times we get caught up in just the exalting Christ with our thoughts. And we go through a nice and we say so wonderful things and then it leads to nothing. Not these ladies. They go immediately after the angel tells them. They find Jesus and Jesus tells them to go and they go. They don't start debating about how, what does it mean to go? What, what, what does going mean? Can, can I go with my will? Can I go with my prayer? No! What do they do? They go. Physically they go and they tell. Now, not only is this, that we see this, to humble yourself before the risen Savior, you must exalt Christ with your thoughts, you must exalt Christ with your actions, but you must humble yourself by letting go of your agenda. You must humble yourself by letting go of your agenda. And we see that in verses 11 through 15. In this section of the text, it's quite impactful. Again, let me reiterate that the contrast is not put there to be looking around at different members, but it's to shine the light on your own heart and see which one are you falling into. Are you following into these ladies who as they receive the revelation, they obey immediately? Or do you find yourself in this category? It says in verse 11 that now while they were on their way, the ladies, some of the guard came into the city and came and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. What did they report? Some of the information? They, they told a little snippet, enough, uh, 140 characters, is that what a tweet is? They, they tweeted what happened? No, the word says all. They've reported about the earthquake. They've reported about the angel. they reported about how the stone was moved, how they had fear, how they fainted. They reported it all to them. And what was the reaction of the priest? Boy, they just got on fire for the Lord and started worshiping God. Hallelujah! And they, got, they went and found the disciples and started worshiping. And Let's start the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. No, it's not what they did. Why? Well, what did they do? It says that uh, as they came together and reported this, it says they assembled with the elders and consulted together. They gave a large sum of money and told the soldiers something to, to, to say. They consulted. The whole time they've been scheming. The whole time they've been trying to have control of the situation. The whole time they've been trying to uh, make sure that the crowds screamed out, crucify him. They tried to make sure that Pilate crucified him. They tried to make sure that he was ridiculed. Each step of the way, they've been trying to control the situation. And now something has happened that they can't control. So what are they going to do? They're going to come together, and they're going to continue hardening their hearts, 
and they're going to pay out money. Where's the money coming from? <laughs> it's, it's vague, isn't it? Did they use their own money to pay the soldiers off? Or did they use the money that was in the temple, God's money, to pay the soldiers off? We don't know. It's just left vague. And what do they tell them? What's the story? Oh, what, what did these religious leaders come up and say? You're to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Not sure they thought that through too well. How, how are they going to know that if they were asleep? Either they were asleep and he got stolen and they don't know what happened, or they awoke and they saw the disciples grab him and take him. So then they weren't asleep. It's not like that. I don't, I don't think any of these guys have thought this thing through too well. But that's the story. These religious leaders, these religious leaders who supposedly fear God are encouraging pagan soldiers to lie. They supposedly follow the God of truth and they're encouraging pagan. How do you think they're going to witness to them later on? Let me tell you about the God of truth, the true God of, of heaven and earth. No, don't tell me about that, God. I've got my money. I'm good. How, how do you witness after something like this? How do you be a light to the Gentiles, as it says in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6? How, how do you do that? You can't. And if the governor finds out, if for some reason he, he finds out, don't worry, we're going to persuade him. We're going to persuade him and keep you out of trouble. So what do they do? Well, they go out, they took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And they told the story widely. They spread it around. They told people among the Jews and even until that day. Here's religious leaders encouraging people to lie. Here's religious leaders who are paying money to make sure that they can control a situation. Can you imagine that? Praise the Lord that that stuff doesn't happen anymore. You know, I'm glad that that happened in the first century, and I'm glad that that's, just, that's done with. And here and today, we, we, don't do, we don't deal with that mess anymore. I'm just, praise the Lord for that, right? Oh, unfortunately, there are still individuals who will continue to try to control their agenda rather than follow what God wants. And as they try to do that, they will lie, they will take money, they will encourage other people to do wrong, just so that they can continue controlling the situation. Now what do you do? If you're to humble yourself by letting go of your agenda, what do you need to do? There's two points of application here. The first is that grasping for control will lead you to sin. At some point, as you grasp for control, it will eventually lead you to sin. The more you try to control a situation, the more, uh, the sooner it will be that you'll start to sin. They had Christ crucified. Now they're getting individuals to lie. A parent trying to get their kid to behave uh, will say that if you don't behave, the boogeyman's going to get you. Will the boogeyman get them? No, there's no boogeyman. But they'll be willing to lie to their kid so 
so that they can control them. It happens in families. Parents will lie to kids. It happens in churches. Religious leaders will lie to the congregation. It happens on a nation level. No, not on a nation level. Yes. As you seek to control, at some point it will lead you to sin. As you promote your agenda and try to control it so that others are falling in with that, at some point you will be sinning. What do you need to do? You need to let that go. You need to humble yourself and accept God's agenda. What is God's agenda? God wants a holy church. A holy church is individuals who are pursuing after holiness. Individuals who are saying no to sin and seeking to be without sin. Seeking to obey God's word. That that is a, a church that's holy. God wants its members of the church to uh, exalt his name among the nations. It's kind of hard to say that we're going to be a holy church, but we're going to cop, we're going to choose, pick and choose what parts of the scripture we're going to listen to. And we'll totally disregard the, the part where it says that God's name should be exalted among the nations. I mean, it would be absurd, right? It would be illogical to say, we want to be holy and we want to follow God's word, but only the parts that are convenient to North Oaks Baptist Church. That would be absurd. And anyone would say, shame on you. Wouldn't they not? Of course they would. God is working right now to have his name exalted among the nations. And as a church, we have a responsibility, as the body of Christ, to go out into the nations. What else is God doing? What else is God's agenda? God wants you to be more like Christ and less like yourself. That is the work that Christ is doing in your life right now. It is his will that every day you look more like Christ. Is that a decision you make once that you come forward and kneel down and, and no. It's a daily decision. <laughs> Sometimes it, it's several times throughout the day that you're deciding, I would rather be like Christ than like myself. Oh, but it would be so convenient right now to, to manipulate and to lie. I want Christ more than I want my agenda. Is that true for yourself? Again, the purpose of contrast is not to look around, but to examine your own heart. We humble ourselves by looking to the risen Savior, by exalting Christ in our thoughts and exalting Christ in our actions. We humble ourselves by letting go of our agenda. When you grasp for your agenda, it will eventually lead you to sin. You humble yourself and accept God's agenda. I wonder if that's a reality for you. I wonder if you're on the side of the women and maybe you said, I'm not there. I'm not getting God's revelation and I'm not putting it into practice because I've never accepted Christ as my Savior. And to you, I would say today is the day of salvation. Put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. His death. He died in your place as a substitute to redeem you, to buy you out of the slave market of sin so that you could be an adopted son, daughter, and be a co-heir with Christ. Put your faith in his work. It's the only thing that can save you. 
maybe you say, well, I am saved, but it's been a while since I've been looking at God's revelation and putting it into practice. In fact, I've been more obsessed with trying to figure out if that's a, 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 a genitive uh, of description or if that's an absolute genitive or an exegetical genitive. I've debated the words, how is that adverb being used? And at the end of the day, I still haven't done a thing. I've studied and studied and studied, and I've debated and debated and debated, but I haven't shared the gospel with anybody. That should be repented of. What did the ladies do? They heard the revelation and they went and told. Maybe you find yourself like the religious leaders. There's some type of agenda you're holding on to. You're trying to control something. You're willing to lie and to manipulate to get it done. That needs to be repented of. You need to seek reconciliation with God and with those who you've hurt. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I pray now that uh, we reject trying to control life through lying and through manipulating. I pray that we can humble ourselves to take your revelation and, and exalt risen Christ. Father, if there's someone here who has never accepted Christ as their Savior, that today, today can be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for for those who have been doing this, that they've been acting like these ladies who hear the revelation and obey it, I pray that you, your spirit would encourage them. Father, for other of us that we need to change something, I pray our spirit would be convicted. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.